I invite you to join me as I pray. Lord God, in you alone, we find life and goodness. You sustain us. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to speak to us today. I pray as the preacher that you would help me. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. One of the bands that I have long appreciated is the Dave Matthews Band. And while I like the, uh, the songwriting, the instrumentation, the rhythm, the melody, uh, the songs, they really have, many of them have a way of getting stuck in your mind. Um, Dave Matthews Band reflects the spirit of the age and sings about a life of carefree living. And there is a song where he repeats over and over and over again that, that mantra of Epicureanism, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Over and over again. And it can get stuck in your head. And it's actually, um, it's, it's in the scriptures as well, um, but not in a way that commends it as a good thing, but as pointing us to an alternate way to look at life. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 8.15 speaks of the best that worldly wisdom apart from God can figure out, assuming God does not speak or interact into things. And he looks around and he sees that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And he says, so what can we surmise? Well, the best is to eat and drink and pursue merriment because at least in the days of your toil, you can bring those things with you. But of course, the writer was writing with worldly wisdom and then encouraging the reader to point to a better wisdom that's available. And so he's not saying that's the best thing. Or in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if there is no resurrection, chapter 15, he's making the argument that the resurrection actually happened, but Corinthians and you guys hearing, if there is no resurrection, then we ought to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In other words, life is meaningless. So might as well enjoy some things before it's over. The problem, though, is that that assumes that God cannot be known. It assumes that he is not in the midst of the toil. It assumes that there is not a whole lot more after this life. And so I began this morning as a call to worship asking you the question, what is your approach to handling hardship when difficulties come? What is your approach? Some go for the ignore it and eat, drink, and be merry and pretend there's no problem. Just try to, try to hide it. Um, we can seek to escape pain by ignoring it. Um, some people look to a faithless society for guidance. You know, what's everybody else in the world doing? Well, I'll do that stuff and maybe that'll get me through. And the problem is that that does not expect a living God to act. Now, in Daniel chapter 5, we see somebody who is escaping his problems by eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's his approach. And we actually know, historically, the exact date. Daniel chapter 5 happened on October 12th, 539 BC. And we know that date because that was the date that Babylon fell and the Mede and Persian Empire, it was a kind of a team thing, came in and wiped out the city of Babylon. And of course, when you take over the major city of Babylon, you write that down in your records of great things you've done. So we have that recorded. Now, this is also a fulfillment of the statue from Daniel chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar, the great and first big king of Babylon, saw. Remember the statue? You have it on your bulletin. It's, it's part of our uh, sermon series header. That big statue that he saw had 
a gold head, which represented Babylon, and then a silver chest, which was a subsequent kingdom that would be less glorious than Babylon, but would supersede it. And then after that would come another one, and then another one, and then another one. You remember that from chapter 2. And so this is actually the fulfillment of that. Now, I need to give you a slight bit of detail, because it's kind of confusing when you read this, and they keep referring to Belshazzar as opposed to Belteshazzar. They're almost the same name, but King Nebuchadnezzar named Daniel Belteshazzar, and then we suspect it's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who's on the throne now, Belshazzar. Both names basically mean the same thing. Bel was another name for the god Marduk, which was one of the Babylonian gods. And Bel-Teshazar or Belshazzar means Bel, protect the king. But what we're going to see right here is that Bel is not real, and so he can't protect the king. And God's vision from chapter 2 is going to happen because God decreed it, and it's going to happen that night. So when they refer to Nebuchadnezzar as your father, he's actually more likely his grandfather, and it was just a Semitic expression to refer to your predecessor as your father or grandfather or whatever, you know, the one who was on the throne before you. He actually was the fourth after Nebuchadnezzar. So with each successive person on the throne, Babylon was getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and it was making bad military choices, and it was trying to expand in bad ways, and it's, it was being uh, lessened. Its power was diminishing, and so by the time that this, this happens, it's pretty weak. In fact, they just lost a battle not right before this, and King Cyrus was coming down with the Mede and Persian army, and a takeover was about to happen. So what do you do? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's his approach. That's what's happening here. Um, And it's interesting in chapter 5 that there are so many idioms that we have still today in our language. To refer to somebody as having clay feet comes from the statue. Head of gold, chest of silver, midsection of bronze, iron legs, and then feet that are partially iron and partially clay. Well, clay is brittle, fragile. It's not a good foundation. Somebody that has clay feet in that expression, it's coming from here. It's saying you don't have a good foundation. Or to say, well, your days are numbered means that the end has come upon you. It comes from this chapter. Or to say the handwriting's on the wall. The handwriting on on the wall means you've been found wanting. You've lost. The handwriting's on the wall. There goes our season. We're not going to make it to the playoffs or whatever it is. We still use these expressions today. And they all, those, all three of those come from this chapter. I find that interesting because this is such a powerful story. Now, the chapter has three rebukes of Belshazzar, the king, and then a declaration that his life was taken from him that very night. So three rebukes, and they come from the queen, they come from Daniel, and they come from God. And I'd like to look at those three, but before I do, I have to set up the party a little bit. So in a difficult situation where pressure is mounting, where his kingdom is weakening, his authority, his power is not looking so great, he throws a party for a thousand people. These are nobles, leaders. A thousand's a nominal number, but it's a huge party. And the party is not um, necessarily one of, you know, let's get all the nobles and leaders together and have a, a strategic plan. The his concubines, as well as his wives, are there. There's drinking. It's basically a hedonistic fest. They're just going to drink and get drunk and, and, and 
bask in revelry. It's going to be a night of a wild party. And he's going to ignore what's going on. And the fact that he's got a thousand of the nobles involved in this idolatrous worship, he's actually got the whole kingdom doing something, not just him. And we're going to hear that the kingdom has been demanded from you, not just your kingship. And this is the end of Babylon tonight. So it's a big party. um, And his problem is that he's proud and he shouldn't be. He's proud in his position that's been given to him. He's desecrated sacred vessels of Israel's God, and then he praised the creation, simple things like gold and silver. He doesn't even use the name of the gods that the the spirits that were empowering the worship of these things. He simply praises, you know, wood or bronze or brass or whatever, as if it could even speak, which of course it can't. And so what we have here is a challenge of the gods. It's not all that different than 1 Kings 18, where Elijah, God's prophet, squares off with 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and mocks those, those prophets because their gods are not able to speak and cannot answer with fire, and the God of heaven does. And it's a battle of king. The clash of the two kingdoms is happening right here. So the text reminds us a couple of times that these idols are not real. They're inanimate objects. Wood does not deserve worship. It's just wood. And remember, one of the reasons, the major reason that the exiles were in exile was because they kept worshiping false gods instead of their God. That was what God's warning was to them. When you go into the land I'm giving you, be careful to do all that I'm instructing you. And their task was to push out the other people, including their idolatrous worship, and they didn't do it. And when you read through the annals of the kings, first and second kings, you hear this refrain over and over again, and -and so-and-so became king when he was whatever age, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they did all kinds of idolatrous things. And every once in a while, there was a good king. But even when the good kings came into power, it often said, but he refused to remove the high places. These were specifically high mounts or little hills that had altars on top of them to honor those false gods, and they refused to do it. And so as exiled Israel is reading this, it's not only saying God's in charge and he's doing what he promised in the vision from chapter 2, but remember, these idols are not real, and Israel has had a long history of that kind of worship. I mean, remember the golden calf when Moses is on the mountain? They made a golden calf and were worshiping that while the God of the universe was giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So this is a reminder to them. But it also should be an encouragement to them that God is in charge, which we heard last week. He's the one who sets up the kings, and he is the king of all kings. So they tell us in here a couple of times that the wise men of Babylon were not able even to read the inscription on the wall, much less interpret it. And I did an interesting search. You know, the word finger is only in the ESV Bible like 40 times. And if you, if you look up the, the phrase finger of God, it's only in there four times. The first time is in Egypt when Pharaoh is being challenged, another battle of powers. And Moses is sent with these signs. And, and Pharaoh gets all of his magicians and some of the signs they can copy. And when the gnats are released... He tells Moses to, to, to strike the dust of the ground, and the dust turns into gnats that flies into everything. And when that happens, the Egyptian magicians say, 
Pharaoh, we can't do this. This is the finger of God. That's interesting to me that he, they use that expression. And then again, there's two other places that copy one another. When God gave the Ten Commandments, he wrote with the finger of God on the tablets and gave them to Moses. The only other place that phrase occurs is in the New Testament in the mouth of Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But the finger of God is kind of rare. So in this story, in chapter 5, a hand, a human hand with fingers appears in the middle of that party and scratches into the plaster wall words right while they're worshiping the gods of stone and silver and gold and all this stuff. A hand appears, and it's terrifying. And the magicians can't, can't even read the words. They don't know what to do. And it says the queen came in. Now, considering that Belshazzar had his wives and concubines already in the party, it wasn't his wife. It was more likely the queen mother, maybe even the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. This is 30 years later. So this is a long time after um, Nebuchadnezzar was crawling around on the ground like an ox. It's 30 years later. So it's, a lot has happened. He's, he, he died, Nebuchadnezzar died 23 years before this happens. And so it's probably his widow comes in, and this is the first rebuke that, that he gets. So he's the king, and she just busts into the party, uninvited, and tells him what to do, and he does it. Go get Daniel. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, had a man named Daniel. He called him Belteshazzar, but his name was Daniel. She's actually reverted back to his Hebrew name. It's interesting to me. Because remember, she would have been there when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And the last part of that humility was Nebuchadnezzar's testimony that the most high rules, I was proud, he humbled me, and he gives praise to God in the prior chapter. When chapter four comes to an end, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Fast forward 30 years, chapter five starts. His grandson is walking in pride, but his widow goes in and says, hey, there's this one of the exiles that your grandfather brought to Babylon was endowed with powers from the holy God. And she unwittingly, now the reader would of course pick this up, but she didn't realize the words that are being put in her mouth. There's a double entendre here that's kind of interesting. In the Aramaic, there's a, there's a phrase of, uh, that is used for the experience that Belshazzar has when he sees the hand, and then Daniel's ability to solve riddles. And it's an expression of, it says that when, he saw, when Belshazzar saw the hand, let me, let me go to the verse. Um, he was greatly, uh, I underlined it here, it's uh, verse 6. Then the king's color changed, like his blood dropped out of his face, he turned white, and his thoughts alarmed him. It says in the English, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. But literally his limbs gave way is his bowels became untangled. In other words, he, he had an accident. He was so scared. And when the queen comes in, she says there's this Daniel, and he's able, the phrase is like untying knots. The holy gods has given the ability to Daniel to untie knots. And there's a, there's a reference there that is kind of mocking Belshazzar, and the readers would have picked that up. Of course, the queen didn't understand that because she didn't know what was going on here, but Daniel puts that in there. It's a humiliation. Remember, the one who is pride, who's 
full of pride, God is able to humble. And so that's the first time he's mocked. The second time is now Daniel. He's now 80 plus years old. So keep in mind, it was 605 BC when he came in. This is now 539. He was a teenager back then. It's 66 years later after the time he arrived. He's over 80 years old. And he's probably been fired by one of the successive leaders, and so he's kind of gone off into obscurity. He was not called in with the magicians and enchanters until the queen says, hey, remember, there's this guy, Daniel. And Belshazzar is condescending to him because he's just been praising the Babylonian gods and mocking the god of Judah, and now he's got to bring in one of the exiles from Judah and ask him for help. And several times in here, he says things like, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, he's treating him like a captive. He's condescending to him. He says, I understand that the gods, he takes the word holy gods out of what the queen mother had said. He's kind of playing it down, playing it down. And twice in here, he says, uh, verse 14 and 16, I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you. I have heard that you can give interpretations. In other words, he doesn't believe it. And if you can do this, I'll give you the, you know, the gold chain and the purple clothes and call you the third in the kingdom. By the way, he's the third in the kingdom because his father, Nebuchadnezzar, is actually the one that historical records say was on the throne, but he abdicated and went off to pursue some religion, and he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge. So his dad's actually the ruler. Belshazzar is number two, and he says, I can give you the number three spot, which, of course, in the morning will be worthless because the army's about to come in and take them out. So Daniel's 80 years old plus, has nothing to lose at this point, and is irritated that he's been condescended to and didn't learn the lesson. And so he lectures him. Listen, keep, keep your gifts. <laughs> They're no good in the morning anyway. Um, he gives him a whole lecture about what happened to his grandfather, how God humbled him. How, and, and he's pointing out how great Nebuchadnezzar was. Whom he wanted to raise up, he raised up. Whom he wanted to put down, he put down. And he conquered. And he, he's talking about all the great things that God empowered Nebuchadnezzar to do, implying Belshazzar does not have that same strength. And he goes through the whole thing about crawling around and eating like an ox. And then he says, and you know this. You know this. Bel and verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. In other words, he heard the testimony and just ignored it. He saw what Nebuchadnezzar had written. He'd heard the stories. People talked about this. Nebuchadnezzar didn't hide that. He made it a public testimony of what God had done to humble him. And he's praising God and made it public. Now, it happened many years earlier, 30 whatever years earlier, but everybody knew this. And you should know, you know this, Belshazzar, and you've ignored it. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. So Daniel's basically, and there's another finger involved here, and he's just pointing at him. Belshazzar, he's not afraid of the king. Keep your gifts. You should know this. You've, you've stood up against the God of heaven, even though Nebuchadnezzar told you who he was. You, I think the word you and your is in there like 14 times just in that little speech. And he again reiterates that you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. That's pretty tough. And then here comes the third rebuke, the words. If you put up on the screen some letters, you think, why can't the magicians read words written in their own language? Well, in Aramaic, like Hebrew of those days, they wrote in all caps with no vowels and they had no spaces. But you could read it 
you could read, if I took all the vowels and punctuation off of a paragraph, you could read it in English if you have the context. But they didn't have the context, they just had letters. So this is an English illustration. If you were to look at that, you don't know what word or words those are. It's hard to figure out. It's no wonder the magicians couldn't even read what the words were because of the way that it was taken out of context and shown like that. So just take the first three letters, P and D. If you were to stick vowels on that, what words could you come up with? You come up with penned, pined, pained, pond, pound, panda. Those are all words that just the first three letters could get. And so if I was to tell you we're going to break them into parts where it's P-N-D and then H-L-F and leave N-C in the middle, now it's a little easier to guess. And then if I told you it had to do with weights and measures, you might start figuring out, oh, I see what you're doing. So pound, ounce, and half. See how that's the word pound, ounce, and half with the vowels taken out and the consonants scrunched together, all caps? That's basically what happened. Many, many, tekel, and parson were the words. A mina is a weight, 500 grams. A shekel is 10 grams, and parson is a half of a mina, 250 grams. So even if they could have read it and they saw it was many, many, shekel, parson were the three words, they still wouldn't have known what it meant. You just have a bunch of weights up there. But Daniel interprets it then and says, here's what it means. Mina, the the weight of 500 grams, means your days have been measured and numbered. Your days are numbered. And then shekel, you've been weighed and you've you've been found to be really light. You don't measure up. You don't weigh enough. And then parson, which sounds like Persian, by the way, intentionally, means halved or, or divided. Your kingdom, not just your kingship, the whole kingdom is now divided and it's given to the Medes and the Persians. This is what it means. And this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Lesser kingdoms keep coming in the image of the chapter 2 statue. And it goes from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. And then eventually, Jesus shows up on the scene. Now, the last place in the scripture that the finger of God as a phrase occurs is in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, it's another clash of kingdoms. Jesus has been casting demons out of people, and he's been accused of doing so by the power of Beelzebul. It's by the demons that you're casting out demons. And he says, that's that's not smart. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It will fall. And he says, and who do your sons cast out demons by then? Let them be your judges. And then in verse 20, this is Luke 11, verse 20, he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a direct allusion back to this chapter. And for Jesus, Daniel was important. He called himself the son of man, which is a reference from here. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks how Daniel is pointing to the ministry of Jesus. And it's the only place in the New Testament finger of God occurs. And Jesus is saying, if by the finger of God, by his power, I'm casting out demons, know that my kingdom, the kingdom of God has now come among you. It's a fulfillment of chapter two even further. And he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Jesus is the stronger man who has come into the kingdom of this world. He has cast down Satan. He defeated sin and death on the cross. He's established his kingdom forever. 
He's already won the war, and the little skirmishes and the toils and the hardships of this life are just little battles, kind of cleaning things up until Christ returns. And so I go back to the question I started with. In difficult times, what do you do? How do you manage? What's your technique for coping with hardship? And we're in one right now. Well, David strengthened himself in the Lord, and Jesus is inviting us to do that as well. He strengthens those who come to him. Praise him who holds your breath in his hand, to reference verse 23. Go to God. Do not look to the surrounding culture for how to handle the pandemic and all these calamities. Go to the, to the Lord. He's in charge of this, and he will strengthen you. Now, I'm going to invite our music team to come up. He's a good, good father. He has grace for us to return to him. He does strengthen us, and he's in charge. He's over all of this, so you need not fear. I want to say a prayer as they get up to their instruments, and then we're going to join in a sermon response song. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the book of Daniel and all of these encouraging stories of your sovereignty, your power, and your goodness. Jesus, I thank you that we are blessed to live on this side of the cross to see the fulfillment of these themes that Daniel and the others only knew a little bit about. Help us to be mindful of your kingdom in our midst and to come to you as our strength in the midst of these challenging times. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. I invite you